Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, the greatest podcast in American history, a.k.a. The Making of Modern America. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer, and today we're talking about the New Deal, everyone's favorite deal. Today we are talking, we sort of talked about last week, uh, the Great Depression, right, the sort of economic collapse of the United States. Uh, and this week we'll be talking about FDR's plan, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's plan. So it should be a pretty good episode. You'll hear lots of three-letter acronyms, everyone's favorite thing to try and remember. Uh, so today, on today's episode, we're going to talk about four major things. One, the topics of the New Deal. Sorry, the programs of the New Deal, right? So what uh, we're actually sort of what the New Deal was comprised of, sort of the goals of the New Deal, what FDR was trying to do through this uh, through these programs, and then we'll talk about some critiques, right? Not everybody on the, both you know the more conservative and the more uh, radical political sides uh, didn't like the New Deal, and then we'll talk about some of the effects of the New Deal, right? So what it actually did and how it changed life in the United States. So major questions, right? One specifically major question is, did the New Deal actually end the Great Depression, right? That was the goal of the New Deal, according to FDR, to end it. Uh, so was he successful in that? And then some other questions, too, like were the benefits of the New Deal distributed equally, right? The United States is a big place. Did everyone everywhere experience the New Deal in the same way? Uh, why did FDR promote the New Deal, right? Sort of, uh, so why why was this his way to end to try to end the Great Depression? And then uh, in what ways people try to counteract the New Deal, right? So how do people try to stop the New Deal from taking effect? So before we get started there, I just want to talk about uh, somebody in one of these little character studies I like to do, many biographies at the beginning of a lot of these podcasts. Uh, So today we're talking about Jacob Lawrence. Jacob Lawrence was a famous, one of the most famous artists of sort of the New Deal era. He received lots of his funding from the WPA, uh, the Works Progress Administration, one of these New Deal programs that we will talk about that helped fund artists. His family was also part of the Great Migration, something we talked about in the Roaring Twenties episode, right? This huge movement of African Americans from the South to the North uh, and places out West in the United States. Uh, also considered to be part of the Harlem Renaissance uh, as well, right? So one of these guys who sort of moves in all these different circles. Uh, and I think it's sort of helpful to illustrate that when you know, we talk about the, the Great Migration and we talk about you know Harlem Renaissance, we might talk about them as sort of separate things, but really they're very much interconnected and people move throughout all these different circles, right? You, if someone is part of the Harlem Renaissance, it's very, very likely that they also sort of receive New Deal funding, right? They weren't that far apart in terms of time, uh, and most people in the Harlem Renaissance were younger, right? So they wouldn't have, you know, dying wasn't a problem there. Uh, Jacob Lawrence himself was a social realist artist. Uh, this sort of, he, he, it wouldn't, you know, don't think of him as someone who's painting these real life paintings, but he sort of, he did most famously paint a series of, of works about historical figures like Toussaint Louverture, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, right? These sort of famous historical characters in these very much sort of like trying to depict them in ways that are meaningful to him, right? Sort of depicting the realities of life without having to be sort of, you know, picture perfect accuracy. Uh, one quote here sort of to it helps you know, I think, sum up his work. Uh, Jacob Lawrence said, If at times my productions do not express the conventionally beautiful, there is always an effort to express the universal beauty of man's continuous struggle to lift his social position and to add dimension to his spiritual being. 
Uh, right. So he's the most famous black painter in America in the 30s and 40s. Right. People knew who Jacob Lawrence was, uh, even outside sort of the black community. Uh, and sort of the important thing to note for with regards to this week's podcast is that sort of the access to WPA funds, right, really allowed him to keep painting during the Great Depression and after. Uh, like, you know, there wasn't that much money for art during the Great Depression, uh, but things like the WPA allowed sort of art to keep being produced in the United States and not just, you know, white art, but also sort of black art, uh, Mexican art, Chicano art, right, all across the United States. So one of the sort of the big things that uh, the New Deal did was allow people like Jacob Lawrence to continue making their art. Okay, so on last week's podcast, just to review a little bit, right, we talked about the Great Depression and sort of how it started, and then sort of the failed efforts of Herbert Hoover to, you know, try to fix it, right? And sort of, he got crushed in the election, right? He, FDR comes in and wins. But by the time FDR won the election and the time he was inaugurated, you know, the economy had only gotten worse, right? So people were really wondering if FDR could actually do anything to fix this problem. And so immediately, the day after his inauguration, March 5th, 1933, FDR started, got to work, and announced a four-day bank holiday. He also summoned Congress for a special session. Uh, normally, Congress wouldn't have met so soon after a presidential inauguration. But he's like, no, you're going to be in office. You're going to be doing stuff. And this, uh, you know, March 5th, marked the beginning of what became known as the 100 Days, right? This sort of classic term in U.S. history. You know, you learn about this, you know, even in like elementary school, middle school, right? This period of 100 days where the sort of the first New Deal began to be formed. This marked sort of a period of increased government spending and the creation of many new government programs, a lot of which we associate with the New Deal. So I mentioned sort of I said the words first New Deal. We'll be talking about how there's really two New Deals in this. Uh, so the first New Deal, these programs were designed to gr- to end the Great Depression, right? The Great Depression was still going on, and they were really focused on stopping them. It wasn't just sort of FDR dreaming up all of these things, right? He had a group of academics known as the Brain Trust helping him with this. Uh, the Brain Trust, one of the main guys, was this dude named Rexford Tugwell. He was a very famous guy. Uh, an economics professor at Columbia University, also taught at University of Chicago and UC Santa Barbara, and eventually would become the governor of Puerto Rico for a number of years. But these first New Deal programs, um, they sort of had three main goals, right? To provide relief, to begin recovery, and to reform the economic system, right? So providing relief for those people who were really, really hurt by the Great Depression, which was, you know, most people in the United States, to begin recovery, so to get the economy back on track, Right. So it could, you know, get out of the spiral caused by the Great Depression and then finally to reform the economy. So something like the Great Depression could never happen again. Right. So relief, recovery and reform. Those three R's Uh, And this sort of first hundred days period and a little bit after is known as the first New Deal. Uh, This first New Deal would dramatically sort of change the way in which the federal government interacted with not just the economy, but with the U.S. in general, right? I mentioned this a couple of times before, specifically in the podcast on sort of American empire and the industrial revolutions, uh, but the the way the U.S. government interacted and the way people thought that the role, what the role of the U.S. government was, was changing, right? Prior to the Great Depression, something like the New Deal would have been unfathomable, right? The U.S. US government directly basically 
sticking its hand into the economy and like saying this is how it's going to work. That was an incredibly new thing, providing direct aid to people. Very, very new. Very much against these ideas of laissez-faire economics uh, and just a huge switch in how the U.S. government works. And people saw it as sort of a necessity as a result of the Great Depression, right? They're saying this didn't work, right? This sort of hands-off approach. People are clamoring for help. We need to help them. It's the role of the federal government to help the people of the United States. And the First New Deal sort of finally brings those ideas into the mainstream and sort of enacts them in the U.S. for the first time. So we're going to look at each of those three R's, relief, uh, recovery, and reform in turn. So we'll look at how the First New Deal met with dealt with relief first. Um, they addressed it in a few ways, right? One was the Emergency Banking Relief Act, which established federal control over banks for the first time, really, and kept many of uh, banks afloat through government loans, right? Remember, one of the big problems with the Great Depression is that banks were collapsing, and when they collapsed, people lost all the money that they had put into these banks, right? Lost years and years, decades of savings in an instant, had no recourse to get them back. That's horrible for the economy. The economy also sort of, at this point, capitalist economies basically need banks to function. And so with these massive collapse of banks, it's a double problem for the economy. So the federal government steps in and starts to enact some control over them, keep them afloat the government loans. FDR also ended the gold standard, right? That was this huge thing during the, you know, the populist progressive era. The populist wanted it gone. You know, the, the cross of gold speech, right? This famous speech. FDR finally did away with the gold standard, putting, uh, which allowed the, the U.S. to sort of put more money back into the economy. There are, you know, people who are conspiracy theorists about the fiat economy or whatever, but sort of taking the U.S. off the gold standard was a huge thing. FDR also helped to create the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, giving them a $500 million budget. Uh, this would create economic programs to help employ the unemployed, right? So to give it, get people back working, get people get money back in people's pockets, right? The FIRA uh, did job training programs and then also sort of just allowed, uh, gave money for companies to hire individuals, right? A very new thing, something that Herbert Hoover basically refused to do. And I, I'm going to say, keep saying FDR passed these, but he was working with Congress, right? FDR did this huge majority in Congress basically could shepherd anything he wanted through uh, both houses, both both the the House and the Senate. Uh, So sort of a dual thing here, but it was really FDR pushing it. Uh, So relief, it wasn't just those two. Uh, One of the big programs that operated under FIRA, right, the Federal Emergency Relief uh, Act administration, sorry, uh, was the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, they hired unemployed men between 18 and 25 years old uh, to work on infrastructure projects. Uh, by 1941, they had hired 2.5 million people, right? So that's a huge amount of people with jobs directly through the federal government. These men uh, earned $30 a month and had to send part of that home. Not a lot of money today, but sort of at the time, that was huge for people who weren't making anything. Uh, the CCC, uh, a lot of the infrastructure projects they did, 
did involve working in the national parks. The reason why the U.S. has such nice national parks with, you know, really groomed trails and all this stuff is because of the Civilian Conservation Corps. They were the ones who set them up originally. Other sort of uh, programs like the CCC were the PWA, Public Works Administration, and the CWA, the Civil Works Administration, who also did sort of, you know, working outside of parks uh, in cities uh, to do beautification projects and also help build bridges, redo roads, all these sorts of things. So these huge infrastructure projects. Also sort of as part of the relief part of the New Deal, FDR pushed for an end to prohibition, right? You know, He's like, people have enough problems. Uh, we should let them drink at least a little bit without, you know, hassle. Uh, and so on December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified, which ended prohibition, one of the most sort of hated periods of American life. This provided some psychological relief, right? Uh, that sort of idea, you know, you can actually get a drink without, you know, being afraid of going to, to jail and also financial relief. Uh, the government can now once again tax alcohol. And those vice taxes uh, were beneficial to sort of these government budgets. Uh, So moving on now to recovery. Uh, Recovery programs were far more focused on larger economic structures rather than the sort of individual relief programs that the, you know, things like the CWA and the PWA did. The most consequential piece of sort of recovery legislation passed during the, I would say, during FDR's entire tenure, not just talking about recovery here, but entire tenure, was the National Industrial Recovery Act, the NIRA. Uh, Partly, this was shepherded into being by Francis Perkins. Uh, This set up new industry regulations and improved working conditions, right? So it sort of, um, it was a whole, whole, whole big thing, but it made it, did a lot of stuff for labor in the United States and for laborers. Specifically, there's this part of the NIRA called Section 7A, which guaranteed labor unions the right to organize. Uh, That's sort of why I think it's so consequential, right? For this, obviously, unions had existed. We've talked about a lot of them, but they weren't guaranteed that right to exist until Section 7A of the NIRA was passed, right? This is a huge, huge, huge deal for uh, labor rights and for labor, labor unions in the United States and sort of a fundamental aspect today of industrial relations. So why that's why I sort of think it's basically the most influential thing he passed. Um, it wasn't sort of perfect, though. Uh, it excluded, in order to get it passed, FDR basically made the choice to exclude farm workers and domestic workers from the NIRA. Some of that has changed a little bit, but sort of farm worker unions are still very much not covered uh, by a lot of the NIRA. Also part of, also what the NIRA did was sort of establish a 40-hour work week as the standard, banned child labor, right? Remember during the Roaring Twenties, child labor laws had been rolled back by Republicans. Now FDR sort of banned it. Um, and that lasted for a long time until basically like two years ago when Republican states started sort of move pushing back the age at which kids could work again. Uh, he also implemented a minimum wage through the NIRA. Something that the NIRA did as well, and I'm sorry to keep using all these acronyms, but it's sort of necessary, was create the National Recovery Administration, so the NRA. Uh, the NRA's job was basically to enforce the rules that were in the NIRA, uh, if that makes sense, right? So this sort of law created an administration to help enforce itself. Um, And the NRA also provided a place for businesses to sort of meet and agree on prices, right, within the government, uh, keeping things lower. Uh, They also began a public relations campaign, sort of, you know, this propaganda campaign, encouraging people to buy 
uh, only buy goods from companies that would display the Blue Eagle, right? And the Blue Eagle meant that they were following all the rules of the NRA, right? So they were paying their workers a minimum wage. Uh, they were, weren't using child labor. They were, you know, agreeing on lower prices, right? So sort of you, you should buy Blue Eagle. And, and stores would have these signs in them showing them that they're, you know, doing their part, quote unquote. So moving on to reform, um, much of the of the reform efforts sort of, as I mentioned, of, the, of this first New Deal were about fixing the economy so that something like this could never happen again. Some of these were very dramatic, um, very drastic changes, uh, especially to how the federal government operated uh, and really inserted the government directly into the economy more than it had before. This is where you, when we're talking about critiques, it's these reform bills that really are where the critiques are focused at. People start calling Roosevelt a socialist, uh, saying he's doing socialistic experiments, all this sorts of stuff. But before we get to the critiques, let's look at what the reforms actually were. Uh, one was the Agricultural Adjustment Act, so the AAA, AAA. Uh, this offered, this was about sort of agricultural rights, about farming in America. Uh, this offered farmers cash subsidies to not grow crops, right? That sounds sort of crazy. But as I mentioned before, right, one of the big problems for farmers is that basically fields were being too productive, right? There was a glut. America was just producing too much stuff, which meant that prices were sort of staying very, very low. Not just prices, but agricultural problems arose from this, right? Fields were being sort of overplanted. One of the reasons the Dust Bowl was created was because basically the fields were leached of all their nutrients. The soil was destroyed, kicked up into dust. And so these subsidies would do two things. It would raise prices, giving more money for farmers, and then it would also help the environment. Um, this sort of ended up being good for bigger farms, actually, uh, but really hurt smaller farmers and sharecroppers, just sort of some of the economic incentives there, right? Like the subsidies weren't really enough for smaller farmers for them to make sense, uh, but it sort of did help the agricultural sector as a whole. To this day, subsidies and now what's called federal crop insurance uh, continue on to this day. And it's sort of, you can see some writings about how that's actually still really hurting the environment in a lot of ways, right? Uh, a lot of farmers, there's this great book about it called Perilous Bounty by Tom Philpot. But basically this uh, federal insurance, uh, crop insurance, really makes it, really doesn't give an incentive for farmers to find better, more agriculturally, sort of, sorry, more like environmentally friendly ways to farm uh, because they can rely on that insurance. But it is sort of what was necessary at the time. Uh, FDR also created the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA. This was had the possibility to be a really radical sort of, um, sort of group here. Um, it allowed the government to build dams and in, you know, Tennessee uh, and allowed provided electricity to many poor and isolated people across Appalachia, right? This is a huge, huge, huge program. The government providing the sort of infrastructure stuff. Uh, the Supreme Court actually ended up um, overturning a lot of that, and we'll talk about that later. But for the, uh, a while, TVA really brought electricity to a lot of places in the United States that hadn't had it yet. Uh, the Federal Securities Act was also created as part of this re sort of reform package. This added additional regulations to the stock market. Uh, right before, prior to the crash uh, that, you know, precipitated the, the Great Depression. The, there was really no regulations on the stock market, right? Widely, widely uh, unregulated. This meant there's a lots of, you know, chicanery going on. And the uh, 
FSA, right, the Federal Securities Act sort of stopped a lot of that. Uh, it uh, disallowed insider trading, right? So put rules on who could make trades, how and when they could put trades. Something called the Glass-Steagall Banking Act regulated bank- banks and what they could do, right? It limited the amounts of loans and types of loans, as well as the types of investments they could do. Glass-Steagall was repealed in the 90s, 1999, uh, and that sort of directly led to that the Great Recession uh, because banks got caught up in doing a lot of the same types of trading that they were doing prior to the Glass-Steagall Act, and that really ruined the economy. Um, it also created the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, something that a lot of us are familiar with, right? The FDIC is the reason why you can feel comfortable putting your money in a bank, because if the bank fails for whatever reason, your money is federally insured, and you uh, have your deposits guaranteed. Uh, at the time, deposits were guaranteed up to $50,000, which was you know a huge amount for the time. Today, basically, any amount of money is insured, as we see from the failure of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank recently, right? People lost uh, millions in that, but they pretty much everyone got everything back. And this really encouraged people to start saving money in banks again, right? Get money flowing back into the economy, as well as people keeping their savings. Uh, the hundred hundred days, sort of in the history books, ended on July on sorry on June sixteenth, nineteen thirty three. There would be many many more laws passed, but sort of this hundred days was the most fecund, most fertile moment of the New Deal. Right when most of the things we know about in the New Deal get passed. Uh, and of course, with all these things being passed, there are critics of the New Deal. I've sort of mentioned them. We'll talk about sort of first the Republican critics, uh, sort of criticizing uh, FDR from the political right. They continued to argue that the federal government should not be involved in the economy on this level, right? Continuing that sort of Hoover line uh, and the business first Republican line. They argued that, you know, downturns like the Great Depression were natural. And the best solution for this was to let the economy figure itself out. This view obviously did not win elections, though. People were desperate. People were poor. They wanted the government to do something. It wasn't just Republicans criticizing FDR. There are also some conservative Democrats dislike sort of the loss of gold standard. They still really wanted the gold standard. Uh, they disliked the increased power of the state, right? Sort of these sort of same arguments that the Republicans were making. A few of these more conservative Democrats started something called the Liberty League in 1934, a, you know, a year after the 100 days, which was this sort of anti-New Deal group, right? Saying we still believe in a lot of the stuff the Democrats believe in, but we think they've gone too far. Uh, they argue that the FDR, you know, was leading the U.S. towards socialism, right? They're saying this is all these are socialist actions. We can't be doing this. Many of these uh, weren't just economic complaints, though. A lot of these conservative Democrats were white Southern Democrats. Uh, and they didn't like the New Deal because they believed it could lead to the end of segregation, right? They still wanted to maintain those harsh, strict uh, lines between white and black people in the United States. And they thought that New Deal was doing too much to help black people. So these critiques were wildly, wildly racist. And while they got a lot of money from the New Deal, they made sure to that, at least in the South and the places that they control, that non-white people received far fewer of the benefits of the New Deal than white people. Uh, one of the ways that the New Deal could get passed is that FDR made some sort of 
some deals uh, so that the money wasn't federally distributed, but sort of distributed at the statewide level, which meant that these uh, Southern conservative Democrats had much more control over it and could prevent a lot of black people from getting the money of the New Deal. Now, that didn't mean um, the New Deal, sorry, isn't like wasn't very helpful to a lot of people, but it's sort of the it's the way it was distributed was very unequal. There were also critics of the New Deal from the left, right, the political left, these more sort of uh, socialist, uh, communist people. They thought the New Deal was too timid, right? They thought the New Deal didn't go far enough, especially in its reform parts. Uh, both the socialists and the communist parties, uh, who at the time, right, at the Great Depression, so had saw, seen an increase in their numbers, believed that the Great Depression had shown that capitalism was a failure entirely, right? That an economic system that does this just cannot work. And they argue that instead of trying to reform this current capitalist system, the U.S. needed a new economic system, right? Why keep something that can lead to the Great Depression uh, when there are other options available? And in part, FDR did address these critics, basically, with the New Deal. Uh, there's a very clear record in sort of the, the archives that FDR, a lot of the reason behind the New Deal was that he did not want the U.S. to become socialist. Uh, he thought capitalism needed reform, but not abolition. And he thought that, you know, doing these small minor reforms uh, could help prevent sort of people from calling for more and more socialism. And he was basically proved right. Uh, the New Deal would sort of take the fire out of the, of the socialist and communist parties, uh, take the take their drive that they had gained during the Great Depression. Other people on sort of the more political left uh, proposed different solutions uh, for ending the Great Depression, right? Not just the New Deal. Uh, Upton Sinclair, right? This famous author of the time, the guy who wrote The Jungle, uh, also a socialist, ran for governor of California at this time on a platform that would have turned farms and factories into workers' co-ops, this sort of very IWW idea. Uh, Huey Long, who was a senator from New Orleans, introduced something called the Share Our Wealth Plan in 1934. Uh, this his plan would have increased taxes on the rich, given $5,000 a year to every American family, right? So a very radical idea, maybe not putting the U.S. on this sort of full socialist economy, but really, really going beyond what the New Deal did. Huey Long was getting increasingly popular at the time for this plan, uh, but he was assassinated in September 1935, sort of just as his national stature was starting to rise. Courts uh, were also huge critics of the Supreme Court, of the Sorry, the Supreme Court especially was a huge critic of the New Deal. The Supreme Court is is and has been a very conservative institution, right? There's a period during the civil rights era where they were less conservative, but over its entire life, uh, as we see today, even uh, the new Supreme Court is a very conservative institution, and they showed that during the New Deal as well. Uh, just as they sort of had struck down a lot of the Civil Rights Act during Reconstruction, courts struck down many of the New Deal reforms, struck down a lot of the NIRA, right, this sort of really radical pro-labor approach. In its 1935 ruling, Schechter Poultry Corps versus U.S., so it got rid of a lot of the very pro-worker benefits of the NIRA, uh, would go down to strike a lot of other parts of New Deal legislation, right? Got rid of the, much of the TVA. Uh, in response to this, FDR tried to sort of add members to the court, something he could do under the Constitution, right? The number of members of the Supreme Court 
can be changed. It's not sort of set in stone. Uh, eventually, he'd be able to add some, um, uh, at least a little bit, not as many as he wanted, and he did get a lot of pushback for trying to do that. Uh, but FDR, even in response to all these critiques and to this criticism, still wasn't done, still was very popular with the U.S. as a whole, right? One of our most popular presidents ever. Uh, and he sort of, he began a new sort of uh, round of of changes uh, called the Second New Deal, uh, is sort of his plans for reform. Uh, he had huge Democratic midterm victories in 1934, and as a result of that, started planning for more proposals. Most of these uh, were enacted in July and August of 1935, uh, becoming known as the Second New Deal. These were sort of more aimed at middle and lower classes, right? Um, sort of those individuals rather than the economy as a whole. They added more jobs, strengthened organized labor again and provided sort of the beginnings of our social safety net, right? Uh, taking a lot of ideas from his left critics. Those, that's the people he was most afraid of at the time, uh, most worried about challenging his power were people on the left. Uh, and so he took a lot of their ideas and sort of wrapped them into his, sort of like how the Democrats took the, the populist movement ideas and wrapped them into theirs. So the more jobs aspect of the Second New Deal uh, was the Works Progress Administration Administration. This is one of the biggest Second New Deal programs, the WPA, right? They're the group that funded Jacob Lawrence. Uh, they employed more than 8.5 million Americans by 1943, right? So triple the amount that the CCC did. Uh, they built dams and other public works, but also sponsored art and cultural programs, right? So the, there's murals in may, most major cities by the WPA. Chicago has a lot. You can still see them today. Uh, and they also sort of built public works projects, bridges, dams, all that sorts of stuff. They supported artists, musicians, folklorists. One of the coolest things they did, and I think one of the most important things they did, was that they hired uh, writers, you know, academics, all these people to interview people who had lived under slavery, right? Creating sort of one of the richest archives that we have about life under slavery in the United States. And these are all sort of publicly available. You can read these uh, and find these online very easily. I highly recommend finding them out. Other New Deal programs like the Resettlement Administration and the National Youth Administration worked to help get people jobs as well, right? Uh, move people to cities where there were potentially more jobs and to help, uh, you know, teens and adults and young adults get work as well. They also strengthened labor rights throughout the Second New Deal, even in response to the Supreme Court striking a lot of them down. Uh, the Na National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, also known as the Wagner Act, another big sort of pro-labor act, uh, strengthened union and worker rights. Uh, it established the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, which has been in the news a lot recently. Uh, this is sort of the main place where unions had to go when they went to either when they went to sort of start a union, uh, and it gave the federal government more control over labor disputes and increased the penalties for disobeying labor law. Right, so when a company actually broke the labor law, it actually sort of gave more significant penalties. During the New Deal, and because of things like the Wagner Act and the NIRA, you see union membership increase during this period, despite unemployment still being very high, right? Uh, which is not something you usually see when unemployment's high. Usually union membership go down because it's easier for companies to sort of break unions. But in this sort of this situation was reversed due to FDR's insistence on strengthening labor rights. 
you also see the development of the of social safety net, right? The sort of very new thing and one of the biggest parts of the second New Deal. The biggest act in that is the Social Security Act passed in August 1935, right? The creation of the social security system. This was a huge, 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 huge deal. Rearranged basically how the economy worked. Uh, what it did was provide a pension to all Americans over 65, right? So everyone over 65 has access to social security funds. You know, at the time it was a, a good amount of money. It's not as much as it is today. Now it's really hard to live on it, but it's still huge that people can have that money. Uh, there's actually some, some very, you know, as a result of this, people get their social security numbers, which is sort of the way you access uh, your social security funds. And at the time, right, stealing identities wasn't a real thing. People didn't have to worry about, you know, someone getting their social security number. Uh, They're more worried about not having access or forgetting their social security numbers. So you see lots of pictures of people tattooing their social security numbers to themselves, right? So they won't forget and what sort of wild images to see. Uh, other programs as part of the social safety net uh, provided assistance for unemployed people, right? Unemployment programs, uh, disabled people, children, and unwed mothers, all receiving money directly from the federal government. A very, very new thing. FDR also had plans for a national health insurance scheme, um, but lobbying by medical professionals, professionals ended that plan, right? He's pretty close. One of the many moments in U.S. history where sort of a national health insurance uh, project was almost coming to effect, but then did not. The safety net, uh, it's important to note that at this time, it wasn't just the U.S. passing a lot of these social safety net problems, right? Remember, the Great Depression was a very international thing. Um, other countries around the world, especially in Europe, were also passing social safety nets. And the, uh, compared to the U.S.'s, the U.S.'s was far more conservative than the social safety nets passed in Europe, right? Remember, Pretty much all of Europe has national health insurance, much better uh, workers' protection, uh, as well as, you know, uh, better sort of social security uh, type programs as well. So the U.S. did not sort of go to the same uh, lengths as a lot of European nations did. Uh, so we have all these programs now, and FDR's problem partly is that he has to pay for all these programs, right? There's a lot of money floating around now, so how are you going to pay for these programs? Well, one, uh, many of them, were, especially of the Second New Deal, were paid for by taxes on the rich and on large companies, right? You see income tax rates go up uh, during the, the Great Depression, as well as corporate tax rates go high. Sort of taking a page from Huey Long, Roosevelt created uh, what he called the Soak the Rich Tax Plan. This was passed in the 1935 Revenue Act. Uh, it, it imposed the marginal income tax rates as high as 80% on the wealthy and large corporations. Uh, you know, there's a lot of what does, you know, we're not, I'm not going to go into what, what exactly that means, but tax rates were incredibly, incredibly high. Uh, he also increased regulation and taxation on utility companies, right? So companies um, that would provide electricity, sort of water, all this stuff, saw huge uh, tax increases as well. And this new money was used to pay for this new social safety net. So sort of the height of the New Deal was reached throughout 1935, 1936. Congress was still passing many New Deal reforms. And by mid-1936, uh, Roosevelt reached the peak of his popularity, right? So the most popular president um, 
in American history, basically. Despite all these new laws, though, the Great Depression wasn't really over. Unemployment was still really high, despite groups like the CCC and the WPA hiring millions of people. Most people were still desperately poor. Perhaps starvation had been staved off, but people were still really desperate. The, the Great Depression was still going on. Uh, FDR won re-election in a landslide, uh, winning every state except Maine and Vermont. Huge, 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 huge victory. Uh, he did see some stumbles, FDR, sort of his court, the court packing stumble here. Uh, he sort of had a few roadblocks to the continued expansion of the New Deal, especially the Supreme Court, right? Uh, and to try to sort of stop the Supreme Court from stymieing his New Deal efforts, FDR tried to expand the court. I proposed a new law that would allow him to add up to six new justices and to force justices to retire at 70. Uh, this is sort of his quote about it. He goes, we, and this was from a fireside chat. He goes, we have therefore reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. We must find a way to take an appeal from the Supreme Court to the Constitution itself. We want a Supreme Court which will do justice under the Constitution, not over it. In our courts, we want a government of laws and not of men. Right, so you have this argument here. He's making trying to make this argument that the Supreme Court is are these very sort of partisan people who aren't really reading the Constitution, uh, but sort of just going with their own uh, personal opinions about the politics of the time. Um, this was not really an effective argument, um, really, especially for a lot of even Democrats in Congress at the time. They saw this as an overreach of FDR's power, that he was doing too much. And, you know, right, today, we, people, there are some people who do make that argument as well, right, that sort of Biden or even Obama should have tried to sort of add more members to the court, right, especially after Trump's term, sort of switch the court to this really, really conservative group of people, group of justices who are overturning things like Roe v. Wade and other long-standing court decisions, sort of very much in the name of partisanship. Um, they're saying something needs to be done about the Supreme Court, uh, and that sort of is not over 50% popularity in the U.S., but is sort of increasing at that time, sort of making those same arguments. Uh, FDR sort of eventually pushed, stopped pushing for this court reform, in part because one of the justices on the Supreme Court, Owen Roberts, who had formerly been a conservative justice, started voting for the New Deal. So he started passing sort of less of his stuff, started getting blocked because of this justice, Owen Roberts, sort of changed his mind, apparently. Uh, I don't know too much about that switch. I'm sure stuff has been written about it, but that is something that happened. Uh, and so over the next four years, right, FDR appointed seven new judges. Um a lot of them because of replacements. He did uh, get a law passed that allowed him to add some new judges as well. Uh, this cost him some public support, but not that much, right? So it wasn't as big a stumble as people like to make it out to be. Uh, the New Deal sort of gets consolidated as well, right? Uh, it was expanding, expanding, expanding for a very long time. More and more money was being spent. But there's another sort of small recession 
Uh, it was actually sort of caused in part by the contraction of new, new Deal programs. Less money was going to the into the economy, right? FDR thought, okay, the economy is back on track. Maybe we can slow down spending on the New Deal. But that slowdown spending actually caused a recession. As a result of this, some of the more conservative elements of the Democratic Party won seats, more seats in 1938. Uh, and this, they banded together with Republicans to stop a lot of New Deal laws from being passed, right? So this sort of 1938 really marks the end of the really fertile part of the New Deal. The the laws that have been passed largely uh, survived over the next few decades, in part due to cooperation from the Supreme Court, right? FDR sort of switched to the Supreme Court and sort of began its more liberal period, uh, though more liberal doesn't mean liberal, uh, and especially not radical. Uh, and there's sort of a also a growing acceptance of the Keynesiest economic Keynesiest economic principles that FDR had put forward, right? So this idea that government spending can be an effective part of the economy. John Maynard Keynes, the sort of big economist that FDR was listening to. Uh, so some of the effects of the New Deal, right? We've talked a lot about what the New Deal was and its critiques. Let's look at how it actually affected the U.S. Uh, it spurred new cultural changes uh, throughout uh, it's life, right, as much, mostly as a result of its funding of new art projects. Uh, much of the new art funded by the New Deal focused on things previously not seen as acceptable, right, by institutions like Hollywood. Uh, it, it, these art pieces looked at prostitution, black history, suicide, poverty. Um, all of these became sort of the focus of WPA-funded uh, art. Um, you get many, 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 many uh, writers, composers, and artists, other cultural figures got their start with the WPA, right? Very, very famous people uh, sort of got their got their funding um, from the WPA. You get, you know, local Yiddish theater, right? Lots of regional theaters, uh, ethnic theaters, right, are funded through the WPA. So a huge, huge deal for that part of the culture. There's also sort of new deal, new initiated efforts to get rid of gangs that had sprung up during prohibition, right? Even with the end of prohibition, the gangs didn't go away. They just turned to other sources of income. Uh, the new FBI, right? The new Federal Bureau of Investigation was sort of started during this time, was led by J. Edgar Hoover, sort of a big push to get rid of these mob units. Um, they also, the new deal also gave expanded police powers to federal agents. Uh, the FBI agents at the beginning of the FBI could not carry guns, um, couldn't really arrest people without the help of local officials, but the New Deal changed that, giving them hugely increased powers uh, and increasing the role of the federal law enforcement in the lives of everyday people. So very much increasing um, what the what the federal government could do on the police front, sort of increasing the militarization and increasing the powers of the federal government. Uh, that's sort of the beginning of large law enforcement budgets as well through the New Deal. Uh, prior to this, uh, you know, police budgets, even local police budgets, are nothing like we what, what we see today, where you know they can be over fifty percent of a city's budget. Just look at Chicago's budget breakdown. Uh, that really started with the New Deal and increased funding for police. The New Deal, as I mentioned, was sort of pretty great for a lot of the working class. Uh, there was new union protections introduced by the New Deal. Uh, union membership increased. 
increased all around the United States. Uh, wages increased for a lot of union members. There's also a new in- national trade union that developed during this time, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, which started organizing, quote-unquote, unskilled laborers, as opposed to the AFL, who really only worked with, quote-unquote, skilled laborers. Uh, you also get the UAW, led by the United Auto Workers, led by Walter Rother, uh, began unionizing Detroit-area auto parts plants, uh, beginning with GM in 1936 and 1937. They are very successful in organizing these, t- uh, these groups. They use new tactics like sit-down strikes. Um, where they would just go into work and then just sit down and not actually work, keeping the plant sort of closed to scabs. Uh, and they were directly aided by people like the New Deal governor of Michigan, who was very much sort of saw himself as being uh, a, a pro-union guy and refused to intercede on behalf of GM and all these other companies. Uh, UAW, of course, on strike now, sort of, uh, and the current leadership led by Sean Fain, uh, in a lot of ways calling back to that, that Walter Rother, uh, UAW. You also see a change in politics as a result of the New Deal, right? Changing people's relationship to the president, especially. Prior to FDR, the president had been sort of this figure that most people didn't really think about. Uh, you know, presidents didn't often go on these big, you know, tours, trying to meet everybody that was going to vote for them, right? You know, crossing the country, been sort of this remote figure. Uh, but with FDR, he very much became like people started putting up pictures of FDR in their houses, right? Like framed photos of him. Uh, I became a much a more personal figure, personable figure, right? He started doing these fireside chats uh, through the radio, right? And a lot of people felt they had a personal connection to FDR because of these, something that had not been very common before. You also see as a result of the New Deal, a massive tilt in voting preferences, sort of at looking at the demographic level. Um, you get Catholic people, Jewish people, black voters, all started, all started to vote Democrat in large numbers during the New Deal, uh, something which had not been the case before. They largely voted Republican prior to this, but because of the New Deal policies, because of the great effect they have on these communities, they started voting for Democrats. And those numbers sort of continue to this day. Uh, there's also sort of continued segregation uh, as a result of the New Deal. Um, the New Deal did help many black people find their financial footing after the Great Depression. You can't understate that, right? What That's one of the main reasons why a lot of black people started voting Democrat. But sort of there were many people left out Many black people left out as a result of the New Deal as well, not able to access these federal monies. Um, Some programs, like the CCC, briefly desegregated uh, living spaces, but not for long as a result of sort of racist outcries of other workers there. FDR appointed a number of black officials to departments in his government uh, and relied heavily on his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, to serve as a conduit to the black community. But the sort of the country still remained heavily segregated. Many labor unions continued to exclude all non-white people from their ranks, right? This sort of horrible decision. FDR's government, in order to get the votes of Southern Democrats to pass these uh New Deal bills, bills continued to keep in place segregationist policies, right? Refusing to pass uh, federal anti-lynching bills. 
Uh, then much of the doling out of New Deal benefits was left up to the states, uh, which meant that racist governments often only gave money to white people. There's also something called the Indian New Deal going on at this time, right? Uh, in 1932, FDR appointed this guy, John Collier, as commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, he worked to help restore Indian culture, bring back parts of tribal autonomy, right? Not a perfect system, but some reform was being done. Created the Indian Civilian Conservation Corps and the Indian Works Progress Administration, right? So sort of the Indian versions of the WPA and the CCC. And the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 allowed for the acquisition of land for reservations. Uh, and this helped end some of the practices of forced assimilation. Not perfect by any means at all, but some reform was being done. You also see during this time an increased number of women entering the workforce, um, especially as a result of a lot of the New Deal programs. This did provoke some hostility from male workers who thought that uh, you know these women were taking their jobs. It's obviously ridiculous on its face. Uh, but despite sort of this increased role for working women in the economy, the New Deal as a whole continued to treat women as mothers rather than as workers, right? Seeing them as people who had children or would have children and treating them that way rather than as sort of, you know, just regular people who might want to have a job or might not want to have kids at all. Programs targeted at women were also much more likely to have means and morals testing attached to them than ones directed at men, right? So saying that you have to live with your parents, you have to not drink, that sort of stuff was often included in programs uh, for women rather than ones for men. Okay, so some conclusions here about the New Deal. Um, the big question, the New Deal did not end the Great Depression. We'll see that next week's next week's episode about World War II. Um, but despite not ending the Great Depression, it did fundamentally alter the government's relationship with the economy, right? Sort of changing that forever, inserting the government directly into the economy. It also did vastly improve the lives of millions of Americans, right? And uh, created... Huge infrastructure changes to the U.S. It also made FDR one of the most popular presidents of all time, if not the most popular of all time. All right, um, that is it for today's episode. Next week, we'll be talking about World War II. Doing that, we're doing the same sort of thing we did for World War I, a two-part series on World War II, first looking at it abroad and then looking at it in the United States. Uh, thank you for listening, and have a great rest of your day.